Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Linda Broom, a business broker from Texas. Linda shares a couple of transactional stories that are going to have some great takeaways for a lot of you that are listening today. In fact, I would say these takeaways are somewhat insightful. The first transaction Linda shares is about a family-owned retail produce business that procured its fruits and produce from local growers. The family had operated the business for over 10 years, and as the kids got older and started to leave for college and didn't plan on continuing to work in the business, which seems to be a common theme in family-managed businesses these days, you'll see how this impacted the ability to sell the business. One of the stipulations, though, that the seller required was how long they were willing to stay and be available for training. This stipulation triggered the domino effect. Listen to what happened and learn what you as a seller shouldn't do and make the same mistakes that this seller did. Next, Linda shares how an entrepreneur did all of the right things to position their business for a successful exit. However, as is often the case, one critical thing was overlooked that nearly cratered the sale of the business at the last minute. Listen and learn from the journey of this entrepreneur. Be ready to take some notes because I think you're really going to enjoy these stories that Linda shares with us here today. This is Marvin L. Storm, and here we are today with Linda Broom on Business Exit Stories. So, Linda, I'm glad to have you here on our episode today. So, why don't you take just a minute and talk a little bit about where you're located uh, and a little bit about your practice and business. Great. I'm Linda Broom with Transworld Business Advisors. We're located in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We call it the Metroplex. So we pretty much handle North Texas, uh, even into Oklahoma a little bit. So we do what I would consider Main Street businesses. So businesses that you might see out on Main Street, which runs um, from there up to about $10 million. So we do some uh, distribution and manufacturing, but we also will do restaurants and chiropractors and, and dry cleaners, car washes, things like that. So we kind of run that gambit. Um, below what they call middle market. That's great. I'm excited to jump in here and chat a little bit about uh, some of the transactions you've been involved in, uh, given your kind of orientation and being involved in kind of a metro area and the type of businesses you see there and been involved in. So why don't we jump in and chat about a transaction that had uh, its challenges and uh, maybe identify a few takeaways for our audience that they may be able to learn from the transaction you've been involved in. Right. Well, I do love what I do, and I love all the people that I get to meet uh, uh, over the years. And I met an amazing couple that owned a retail produce market. And uh, they'd been, it was a family business, and they had quite a legacy that they had built over the years. And it was a very, um, it's a place where people love to go, great 
great, not only produce, but also um, local products, honeys and nuts and candies and things like that. So it was a very profitable and successful business, uh, but they were getting to a point where they were considering retiring. And so when we sat down and talked, uh, a big part of it was talking to them about what their role was, uh, each of their roles within the within the um, business. And what I found is that they were both very, still very, very involved, even after so many years. Let me ask you a question here, just to jump in a minute. The reason that they were selling, uh, articulate that for our audience a little bit better here. Of what was really the driving force behind the decision to sell? Sounds like their business was doing well. Their business was doing well. Their driving force was grandchildren. <laughs> and I find that a lot. So when, when, grandchildren show up in the picture, people, grandma and grandpa want to spend time with them. So they were really looking to be able to have more freedom and more time, uh, which is why we talked about their role, you know, and their roles were so ingrained in the business that they didn't have a way to step away. It was hard for them even to take a couple days and spend time with the grandkids. So we talked about it and we talked about how they needed to pull away over the next year. Again, they said they weren't in a hurry to sell it. They wanted to get a good price for it. Um, they weren't going to have a fire sale, as they called it. Um, so they were open to keeping it listed for a while until they got the right buyer. But I really suggested that they somehow start pulling away her as far as the back of the house kind of things with the HR and the payroll. And for him, he was still doing picking the picking the produce picking the product. Well, let's chat a little bit about that because this is one of the specialty type of businesses sometimes that it's hard to find someone to step into the role of what, you know, the operations person was doing on the side of the business because there is a lot of knowledge and that come that can only come through years of experience on the type of fruit and the water content and uh, different harvest periods and all of the things that are involved in, you know, this type of produce because produce, you know, has a window for its maximum, you know, taste value. Correct. So that was what we talked about was, you know, try to bring someone in that can learn some of the nuances that are needed in the industry that they would stay behind so that that would be something that the a buyer would say, okay, well, there is someone that's going to be able to know the sugar content of the peaches or the apples, or they're going to know what which when where the best tomatoes come from at what time of year because it's all different based on 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 soils and weather and things so there was just so many like i say nuances that needed to be taught and yes if i found just the right buyer perhaps but as i listed it and as buyers showed up that were interested in it what i found is most of them wanted to just invest they didn't want to um learn the industry uh to the point that they would need to to keep this family's legacy going and they they didn't want to um they just they weren't interested in 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 being that involved. Now some of the some of the things that the wife did could easily have been uh outsourced payroll um, uh, HR, things like that, that probably could have been outsourced, but just the, the basic bones of the business, even their kids were involved at the front with stocking produce to run in the cashier, cash register even. But again, I had that listed for a couple of years and they were fine with that because we didn't find the right buyer for them. And so they, one of the kids went off to college, another one wound up finding something else. So they did bring other employees. So it became a better and better business as things went by as being able to do that. 
except for the fact that they were not pulling away and they were not getting anyone hired to take on um, their roles or at least learn some of theirs. In your experience, Linda, do you find for, you know, the founder entrepreneur, you know, the person that's really involved in the business and they take such pride in the business, do you often find that this is a kind of a systemic issue of people not having the real ability to stand back and hire someone because they may have the attitude that only I can do this? I was just going to say, only I can do this. Absolutely. I find that. Um, and again, it's I get, when I sit down, I, I try very hard when I sit down with my uh, sellers or potential sellers that are going to list with me. And I talk to them about these things on on how they, you know, are you going to be able to pull away? Because you need to look at it from a buyer's point of view. If a buyer comes in, are they going to be able to do what you do? And to the standard that you are used to. And the likelihood is no. So you need to be able to step away, bring in someone else that can, that can, hopefully you can train to the standard you want. And then the buyer can learn from you and them as the training period takes place after the purchase of the, of the business. Well, I think that's good advice. And especially for those that find themselves in a very strong operational role, uh, to optimize the value of your business, one of the key components in any type of exit strategy is kind of replacing yourself so that you aren't essential. You made an earlier comment that I found interesting is that, you know, some of the buyers that came to the table weren't looking for a business where they had to roll up their sleeves and they kind of wanted to buy a business that they could manage. And I think that traditionally, and tell me if you find this uh, to be the case is that there's a lot of buyers out there, especially in the world that we live in today, that are looking for good investment opportunities and are looking to buy a business they can manage versus a business that they can work in. You just have a bigger bucket to draw from. Is that what you find is the case? There's no doubt that um, there's, so I get, I would say, 40 to 50% of my calls are people that have their MBA. They just want to run a business or they were in the IT industry and now they want to just manage a business. No one really wants to roll up their, many of them don't want to roll up their sleeves and, and get dirty, so to speak. Um, and unfortunately in most businesses, um, you know, or in a lot of businesses, especially some of the ones I sell, the, you've got to you've got to get in there and learn the operations of the business. I mean, this retail produce market, there's a lot of a lot of aspects of this that you're going to have to go in and learn. And same with some of my other ones that I've sold. You know, you you've got to go in there and learn it. It's they yes, they have some operations people, they have some employees in place, but um, it's not a, just an investment that you can oversee and and just do the you know just the back of the house. Really here. Uh, you're really talking about uh, if you want to optimize the value of your business, don't be essential to the business, basically, is what, what we're saying here. That it, Correct. There's a lot of more buyers that will create a competitive environment if you have a great business that's profitable because it can be mm-hmm. operated you know, by managing it. So tell me a little bit of how uh, curious in the retail produce business out there, how did COVID impact the business? So they had been pretty steady for about four years and then COVID hit and they exploded. Uh, I want to say 30, 30%, maybe 20, no, not that much, maybe 20% because they were already pretty big. So 20% maybe, but it was, I mean, everyone needed somewhere to shop, right? Grocery stores have a bigger issue in supply chain than a local produce market. Right. So they were still going out to the farms and picking up the stuff and bringing it back. And so therefore 
it was they, they had they were supplied and they had stuff. So um, it did really, really well. And they actually took the price up a bit um, in the at the end of 2020 because that's what um, they felt it was worth. And it, perhaps it was. Um, and what was great is I actually found a buyer willing to pay full price. I got it lender pre-qualified and uh, we moved through in the process. I introduced them to them and um, we went through due diligence and everything moved through pretty well um, <clears throat> with due diligence. The bank was moving forward, uh, everything. I will say that they were a little hesitant in handing me their tax returns. I originally had to do the um, recast on a profit and loss and I don't really like to do that. I like to do them on tax returns because sometimes things aren't always as they appear on a PL. Um, but when the bank stepped into it, they took about two weeks to sign the 8506 to request the tax returns from the IRS, but they did. And that's the form that uh, the bank or someone will fill out to request the tax return directly from the IRS. Uh, we've had a lot of stories here on the podcast where people have forged tax return or doctored them. So the bank wants to get them directly from the IRS. So just be aware of that. Uh, I'm kind of interested here, since it was kind of a specialty business that there had to be some training involved, how long were they willing to stay around for training? Well, what's interesting, um, well, <laughs> originally we had um, probably a 60 day, sixty to 90 days and then to answer the phone, so to speak, over the next year. Um, I found a woman who was had some organic gardening experience. And she seemed to be, for me, she seemed to be a really good fit because she had some experience and, and she was getting the, the SBA, the bank really liked her. So things were going in the right direction. So how long were they willing to stay now? Uh, originally, they were willing to stay around, you know, 60 to 90 days to get her trained because there were some things coming up that they wanted her to be exposed to and teach her how what would happen during these, this process. And I talked to them about this again. They being a niche market, you're going to need to stay on. And, and, and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then about four weeks into the due diligence process, we were just finishing that out. They flipped on me and they said they would only stay for 30 days. Um, that um, originally also the husband was willing to, you know, ride along, so to speak, I'll call it ride along, ride along with her for, you know, until, until she got to know all the vendors and, and everybody in, in place. And then all of a sudden he's going to stay on for 30 days. He's got other things he's already got going. And, it was just a, and I was like, whoa. So let me understand. So now the, the, the criteria, at least on the seller side, they were going to be there for 30 days for whatever reason, grandkids or whatever they wanted to take off in 30 days. How did the lender perceive that? So the lender did not like it. The lender wanted longer and they weren't willing to do that. The buyer was, she was awesome. And she was like, you know what? If that's all they want, that's fine. I, I know enough about, it. I know I know some of the things that they talked to me about sugar content and, 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 and harvesting and stuff. She says, so I'm not really worried about that, but I couldn't get the bank to come off of it. They wanted a minimum of 90 days with a year of, uh, or nine months of, of, um, so to speak, answering the phone. They didn't have to sign a consultancy agreement. They just had to, had to be in there that they were willing that during the transition, that that would be 60 days. And then, um, an additional, uh, actually seven months, so nine months total. I guess really the big takeaway here is, Linda, it might be uh, wise for someone that's looking to position their business for selling always 
to plan on being around for 60 to 90 days, unless you got a business that's so turnkey that, you know, you have general managers that have been there that you don't even show up for the business. So your ability to influence or have an impact on the business is minimal. Uh, unless you have a situation like that, would you say it's a fair statement that a lender and even, you know, buyers should want to be able to see their business continue on successfully a minimum of 60 to 90 days and maybe more? Yes, there's no doubt. Apple, ample training is definitely um, needed. And I always tell my people it's that 30, that first 30 days is just to get, so to speak, the back of the house. And then if it's a niche market like this, it's it's a 60 to 90 day and then phone calls for hopefully as long as they'll take them but you know up to a year because you just never know that first year you know especially with something like that you've got christmas seasons in there you got summer season you've got a you know maybe festivals or things that are going on in the town and different ways to order and and being prepared so there was there's a lot of things that were tied into this particular business that they needed to be available and so you know, and my gut feeling was that they just didn't feel maybe this buyer was um, going to continue their legacy like they wanted. They had a strong legacy in this industry and and, and they just didn't think maybe she was going to continue it. And I guess for me, I wish I would have maybe as the broker, I should have I should have prodded more and said, you know, what's going on here? What? You know, I try. I think I thought I did at the time. I thought I was saying, you know, what's going on? Why are you turning on this at 30 days? And they're like, well, we just can't. And they wouldn't open that up to me. But my gut feeling was they just maybe didn't care for the buyer and maybe didn't think that she could she could carry it on like they had hoped. Yeah, and that's not all that unusual. You know, they no one can do it as good as the founder can do it. You know, <laughs> and uh, sometimes you have to let go. Well, it sounds like the big one of the biggest issue here was that the, they had drawn a line in the sand with 30 days and the, the lender just wasn't going to accept that. They wanted a, a lot more than that. So the deal, the loan didn't get funded and the deal didn't close. Is that right? Correct. Well, that's a sad ending to a, a story that uh, should have been a great business and a, like a buyer could have done well. But sometimes those things just happen, don't they? Yes, they do. And, and, and you know what? We ended on good terms. So I'm like, you know, when, when you've, when you've learned to step away, when you've been able to step away and you can be more semi absentee, call me. I'll be happy to list it again. <laughs> I'm curious. Did they ever sell the business? Uh, no, they're still working the business. So their grandkids are on the short end of the stick, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, let's chat a little bit about a transaction that went well. Uh, tell me a little bit about a business that had a great outcome then. Even though all business have hiccups. So tell, tell me a little bit about one that had less hiccups than normal. This one had less hiccups than normal. And, and the beauty is, is that they planned ahead of time. So I do a lot of networking and I always say to people, I'm looking for business owners that are looking to sell in that one to three year period. And that's because I want to be able to set them up to get them the best valuation, the best price for their business, and realize that they're not in a hurry to get it sold. And that was these people. So they thought about this exit strategy ahead of time. What type of business was it? It was a wheel restoration business. Okay. So I need to, I don't know what a wheel restoration business does or is. So tell us what they did. All right. So you drive a really nice car. It doesn't have to be, but usually people that drive nicer cars don't like it when they scrape the curbs and it causes those marks on your rims. And those can be expensive rims. I know that. They can be. So let's just say you got a BMW and you scrape it and you, or you want to make it a, a different color, but you'll go in, they'll sand that down, smooth it all out. 
and then they'll repaint um, it. So either alloy, black, red. I mean, they can they can do any color. They'll paint any color, but it's um, it's coated on there. So there's kilns involved. And I'm curious, how do they get into the business? Was this something they had done before, or they just thought it up? So interestingly, the husband was a mobile mechanic. And the wife was actually in the car industry, in the automotive industry. And she, the, one of the places she worked, um, sent the wheels out to be restored when there was a car accident, like a collision repair place. Mm-hmm. So when you get in a car accident, the, the rims get messed up, they got to go send them out. They don't do them in-house. And then she wound up working for one of these wheel restoration places. And the service was not very good. And the quality wasn't really there. So she turned to her husband and they decided they'd open their own. So in two, after being in the industry for about 14 years, she had been in it. And then she started in 2014, they, they started this wheel restoration business and it exploded because they had some connections in the industry. Plus their quality was amazing. And so that exploded at the first year and then it doubled the next year and then grew about 20%, um, 20 to 30% over the next seven years. Well, I can tell you from experience, a business that gets off the ground that fast doubles and then has a 20 to 30% annual growth rate is a phenomenal business. And I would imagine very profitable too. Well, and it's a repeat business. So imagine this. So the way this, the way a business like this works is in the mornings, they, take the wheels that are completed and deliver them back to the Audi dealership, BMW, car collision, whatever, whatever the places are, all these different uh, clients of theirs that have sent these wheels the night before, they send them back out the next morning. And that same van at that same place may pick up two or three or four sets of rims again to be done the following night. And so these vans go out in the morning to deliver them and to pick up, they come back then the night shift shows up. I, it's, it's an amazing assembly line. Let me just, I, I love my business because I learned so much about so many different types of industries, right? Never even knew this existed, but the night shift shows up, they start, they smooth them, they get them ready for paint, they throw them into the kilns. So it was cool. And this, and the owners set themselves up where the wife would come in in the morning and do um, uh, uh, AR and AP and then would do some payroll and then she would leave. He would show up around 2.30 in the afternoon. He would stay till the switchover shift at five and not even every day. They could be gone for 10 days at a time and the business still ran swimmingly. So it was, I called it semi-absentee because no business is completely absentee, so semi-absentee, but they they didn't even need to hardly be there. It was a smooth machine running very nicely, retail manager and a night manager handling everything in between. And so as this uh, transaction sort of unfolded, you got a great business, you got owners that thought about you know an exit and set the business up for an exit. I'm just waiting for the fly in the ointment here. What, what, uh, <laughs> what was the hiccup? All business... Uh, transactions have hiccups. What was the hiccup in this situation? Well, let's go to that. They had this listed for a year with another broker and he only brought them one buyer. And I said, that's ridiculous. Let me list it. I brought them six buyers over a two week period and they picked the buyers that they wanted. And they picked buyers with an entrepreneurial spirit that were very much, they really didn't have any experience in the industry. So the hiccup comes in the fact that they were concerned about the night manager. 
and the night crew. And would they be able to hold on to that night crew? Because basically they're the ones that are going out and I mean, they're the ones that are doing the actual quality work. So now you have a, I would imagine you could replace employees a lot easier and you could replace your key night manager, right? That's how they felt. And my sellers kept saying, well, there are other people that could do it. But my but the but the bank also the 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 buyers made it pretty clear to the bank that they wanted something in place for this night manager to stay on. And my sellers did not want to let any of their employees know that they were selling because they had such a great relationship with them. They wanted it to be once it was done, edify these new buyers, tell them how great they are, they're going to take it to the next level. I mean, it was even to the point where they're going to offer benefits, whereas these people couldn't. And so that was a big a big plus. So there were a lot of cool things that we were going to be able to edify and make this new buyer look great for. Well, they just weren't willing to. So, But the bank came back and said they wanted something called a 1919. I'd never been asked for that before. So I did a little research. And it's basically an application that a, that a principal of a, of a small business fills out or a key employee. Okay. So I'm going to take, I'm going to call time out here. So this form 1919 is something required by the lender that's going to finance it. And all lenders want to know that the business is going to be successful. And they realize if a key employee takes off, the business is uh, at risk at that point in time. And so a bank is just looking at risk and they want to reduce the risk. And so they they have procedures in place. And one of these procedures is this 1919, which is specifically designed to extract information out from the business and the key employees. So that's what happened. They had to fill out this and they were unwilling to do that. They were. They, they were unwilling to do it with this employee to inform this employee ahead of time. Because they didn't want the employees to know that the business was being sold. Correct. And that's not unusual. No. A lot of sellers don't want to let their employee because they figure they may take off and they don't want to create more problems. Well, there was no employee contract. I, I asked the question, do you, well, do you have an employee contract with any of your employees, the retail manager during the day, the night manager at night? And they're like, no, we just, they've been working for us for four or five years and it works. And you know, no, we don't. So what there was agreed upon was a consultancy agreement and that the owner would, the seller, the husband would stay on for up to a year or as long as needed until another, if, if the night manager quit, the seller would be available to um, help find a new manager and find someone to replace this guy and um, for up to a year. So like if that one didn't work out, then he'd have to be available and help find. Cause he knows these people wouldn't know who to hire as well as, as, as the seller did. And, and the seller was open to that. Thank goodness. So he said, yep, yeah, I'll be available for that. So that was like the hiccup and it, but it did take some, it was about two weeks of tension. Got to get creative sometimes to keep a deal together, right? We do have to be creative and that's okay. That's part of my job. Well, I think there's a huge takeaway here. I mean, uh, uh, someone that everyone who is thinking about selling a business, if you have key employees, make it a part of the operating procedures of your business to have an employment contract in place. Uh, even if you're not selling a business, those employment contracts are valuable because there's confidentiality and uh, key information and secrets, you know, trade secrets that are covered in that employment contract that give you some leverage if someone takes off and goes to work for a competitor or someone like that. You just expose yourself if you don't have those agreements in place and they're valuable. And in this particular case, if they'd have had those employment contracts in place, they did a lot of other things. 
of positioning a business for sale. But if they'd have had that in place, they would have had been in a much stronger position with the lender and the lender would have financed the business without a hiccup, without hesitation. Would you say that that would have been the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was. And again, this was one of the ones that went well because it was really only about two weeks of just them going, no, we're not, we're not, we're not exposing, we're not telling anybody. And then, and then it was like, what can we do? How can we, how can we resolve this? So we have a situation here where again, uh, obviously the buyer and sellers liked each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you have a buyer and seller that like each other, you can work through and get creative on solving problems that are a win for the buyer and a win for the seller. And that's what they did here. But I think the big takeaway for this story is just as a cautionary tale out there, this deal could have blown up and the buyer could have gone away and they'd have maybe lost the opportunity to sell the business in the time frame that they wanted for the price that they wanted because they didn't have a contract in place for their key employee, an employment contract. Is that a fair statement? Agreed. Yes. Well, this has been delightful. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing these stories. I think there's been some great takeaways here. Uh, and I think our audience will agree. Uh, I know that I often get feedback from the audience that talk about, you know, that story about this entrepreneur or founder sounded just like me. And I'm not going to do what he did because I don't want to have my business in that type of position. So I'm going to do things differently. And that's really the purpose of this podcast. So thank you so much, Linda, for being here. If someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, uh, how would they do that? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's lynda.broom, B-R-O-O-M, like you sweep with a broom, lynda.broom at tworld.com, like transworld. So lynda.broom at tworld.com. And my phone number is 817-755-1026. Again, thank you for being here, Linda. It's been delightful. And the stories were really uh, point on and some uh, good takeaways for our audience out there. So this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. We'll see you on our next episode. Thanks, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.